Uh, we're going to turn back to the passage you read there from Luke chapter 20. And we can just think for a short time about the parable of the wicked tenants. I don't know if you've ever asked this question. Uh, when's a good time to tell a story? And here Jesus tells a story. And given that he always did what was right, then the time that he chose to tell this parable uh, was a good time to tell a story. But given that he did tell a story, we're to ask ourselves what was happening at the time. And I suppose we could say there's at least two things happening at the time. Uh, One is he's getting asked lots of questions. And the, the questions are not about information. They're actually, I suppose you could call them interrogation. And if we're getting uh, attacked by ongoing questions from different sides. Maybe a good remedy is to tell a story. Because that is what Jesus did. Also happening at this particular time in his experience is that the rulers of Israel are trying to destroy him. We can see that in, um, in the previous uh, passage there, where the um, previous chapter, sorry, at verse 47, they were trying to destroy him. So we could ask, if we're wanting to tell a story, who should we tell it about? And as far as we can see from what Jesus did, he told a story about those who were trying to destroy him. I suppose that shows to us uh, the wisdom of the Savior, but also reveals to us the bravery of the Savior, doesn't it? After all, it is the last week of his life. In three days' time, he's going to be crucified. He knows that. Nobody else knows that. If we knew that in three days' time, our lives were going to come to an end, would we have told this story? We know we're familiar with what's the background here. It's coming up to Passover on Friday. And there's a million or so people in the city. Because we're told that was the regular number that appeared annually for this great feast. 
and they were uh, intrigued, the people we could say, by what Jesus had done on the previous uh, Sunday uh, when he had rode into Jerusalem on the, on the borrowed donkey. And I suppose many of them would have been impressed by the fact that he made a, an address when he arrived. That's what important leaders do when they arrive, isn't it? They make a speech. And we know what Jesus' address was to the city of Jerusalem. He just said there, as he wept, and announced that the, the city itself was going to have a, a desperate situation in 40 years' time. He does mention that in the previous chapter. And then he cleansed the temple. And it must have had some effect on the people. What's going to happen next? There were other things happening, of course, to the occasion of this parable. We know that there was a, a revolt being planned because Barabbas, I mean, he's about to be captured. So there's probably some uh, tension in the air. It's unlikely that the authorities didn't know about it. So they would be watching to see if there's anybody going to speak rebellious words. And here's Jesus, and he tells his story. So the people are agog, we might say. The rulers are desperate to kill him. And others are wanting to provide an alternative revolution. In the middle of all this, he tells this story. I'd just like us to um, think about two or three things. Um, the purpose of the parable. What's it for? And then who does the parable describe? Some of the parables of Jesus are quite difficult to understand. But this one isn't. It's really quite straightforward. But then we could also think what the parable does not describe. Because some people think that every statement in a parable should be noticed. And having looked at who it describes, we can ask, what does it describe? And then lastly, the response to the parable by the people and some lessons from it. So the purpose of the parable. This parable is found in Matthew and Mark as well as in Luke. 
but they, they, they present it in slightly different ways. Matthew kind of presents it from the effect it has on the people, what they are to think about this. But um, Mark and Luke sort of show that it's not about the people, really. It's actually about the religious leaders of Israel. And the the purpose of the parable, we could say, is that Jesus is revealing to the people that the leaders are not the ones they should follow. And that would have come as quite as a shock to them because they would have regarded their leaders with a lot of respect and with a lot of um, admiration. But here's Jesus. He knows he's got three or four days to live. And this is what he wants to tell the people about, that they have to be very careful about their religious leaders. That's the purpose of the parable. Who does the parable describe? Well, there are five types of people in the parable. There's the vineyard, and there's the owner of the vineyard, and there's the tenants who are given charge of the vineyard, and there's the servants who are sent to the vineyard, and then there's the son of the owner of the vineyard. That's the five types of character that's in the parable. And it's not too easy, sorry, not too difficult to work out who they are. I mean, the vineyard, it's the Jews, and that's a common Old Testament picture of Israel. I mean, Isaiah refers to God having a vineyard, and Psalms, they refer to Israel as a vineyard. So it's not a, a something that would be mysterious to the listeners when they heard this. They would just say, the vineyard, that's us. And then there's the owner of the vineyard. Well, who's that? Well, that's obviously God, God the Father, we might say. And then there's the tenants who are given um, the role of looking after the vineyard on behalf of the owner. And they are the religious leaders. And then there's the servants. And who are they? Well, they are the prophets that God sends every so often to, to the tenants, to the vineyard, to get fruit. And then lastly, there's the son, the son of the owner. Well, if the owner is God the Father, we know who the son represents. He represents uh, Jesus. So, if that's the case, what does the parable not 
describe. Well, there are some things in it that are just there for the benefit of the story. For example, um, the owner. Well, after um, providing the vineyard in the parable, the owner goes away. Now, we can't push that too far, can we? Because God doesn't go away. He stays where he always is. But in the parable, he goes away. And, of course, we might uh, start wondering, what does that mean? And he also, the owner, he wonders how his son will be accepted. Because when he sends his son into the vineyard, he says there in verse 13, uh, perhaps they will respect him. Well, when it comes to God sending his son, he knew what, what they would do with Jesus. So we can't push that point of the parable too far, can we? And then there's the, the leaders. Um, in the parable, they say, um, when the son arrives in the parable, they say, this is the heir. Let's kill him. But in everyday life, that's not what the people said when they saw Jesus. The rulers actually thought the opposite. They thought he's an imposter. They didn't say, ah, oh, there's the heir. They said, as they looked at Jesus, they said, he's a fraud. But I think Jesus is saying in the parable that they should have recognized him. But they didn't. And also in the parable, when it, ends, when it finishes, <clears throat> the son is still dead. Whereas we know, as far as Jesus was concerned, he was not going to remain dead. He was going to be raised again three days after he died. So every point in the parable is or every statement in the parable is not essential to the point of the parable. The point of the parable is what Jesus is going to say about the religious leaders. But he says other things in it too, so I just want us to think briefly about them just now. So what does the parable describe? Well, it's a historical survey of the history of Israel. The owner plants the vineyard. What's that a picture of? Well, that's about what God did for Israel at the start of their history. 
And we're familiar with the amazing things that God did for them. He delivered them from Exodus, sorry, from Egypt, not the Exodus, with uh, the plagues, the ten plagues. And then he'd rescued them through the marvelous division of the Red Sea and liberty, freedom. And then they went off into the, the desert and they went to Mount Sinai and God gave them a whole range of rules designed for their good. And with a certain amount of enthusiasm, they embraced them. All this will do. Their planting, we might say, the planting of the vineyard. God gave them everything they needed, didn't he? I mean, he himself says that. Again, talking about the vineyard. What more could I do for them? Even after Mount Sinai, when they got to the promised land, he gave it to them, though they didn't deserve it. And again, even with that, he did it in very spectacular ways. The capture of Jericho. What an unusual way to get a victory. But there they got it. The Lord just gave them everything that they needed. And I think that's the point of the parable for saying the owner went away. From, a, from one point of view, he didn't need to do anything else for them. But what more could he do for them? He's rescued them. He's given them rules to live by. And he's given them a land flowing with milk and honey in order for them to dwell there. It's... Uh, Marvelous provision. No wonder he says he had never dealt with any other nation the way he had dealt with them. It was God's gracious, kind, compassionate provision for them. And one would assume that since they had such a wonderful start, well, the future is all about progress. But that's not what the parable tells us. The parable is given out to tenants. To, so the parable says the vineyard is given out to tenants and they are, their role is to ensure that this nation achieves its potential, we might say. They're meant to provide fruit, fruit for God to enjoy. And every so often, God sends servants to get the fruit. One of the curious things about the prophets, well, I don't know if it's curious or not, but one of the features of the prophets when they came is that they were sent to Israel when Israel was not what it should have been. The prophets usually preached when 
that people were backsliding, when the tenants hadn't been doing what they should have been done in guiding the people. And God sent all these prophets, and we were aware, aware of them. <coughs> Samuel, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Elijah, Elisha, Micah, Amos. Right along up until John the Baptist. He sent them one after the other. And they all had this message from God. And as he comes looking for fruit, and we might think initially that it's just a, a message of condemnation that's coming. Because when these prophets come along, they highlight the people's sins. But why are they highlighting the people's sins? They're highlighting them so they'll repent. So, here they come. Along comes Samuel. What did they think of him? Not too much. Isaiah. Isaiah 53. Wonderful chapter for us. But what about Isaiah, the man God sent? What does his first verse say? Who has believed our report? God sent him with a message that they could, if they turned back to God, they could be blessed. But they wouldn't listen. Jeremiah, similarly, but who stopped them is the question, isn't it? Who stopped them getting the blessing? Well, it's the tenants. The ones who should have known better. The, the religious leaders. The priests. The schools of the prophets. They stopped them. And sometimes these leaders, well, they would be um, sort of anti the God of Israel. But other times they just said to the, the prophets, no, no, you're wrong. As they said to Jeremiah, God would never punish his people. What you're talking is ridiculous. But in the process, they rejected the message of these um, servants that God sent one after the other in order to bring blessing and restoration to his people. But they didn't listen. And eventually... He sent his son. And Jesus came. And of course Jesus is saying here in the parable. That when God sends his son. He's going to be treated exactly the same way. 
as the previous tenants treated the prophet. He's going to be cast out. Although with regard to the son, the son of the owner that is, God says, sorry, Jesus says, he's going to be killed. Of course, that's a very... I wonder how Jesus said that. Because in three days' time, it's going to happen. They're going to kill him. They don't know that. They would like to have known that. Because they were trying to destroy him. But they, so far, had not yet found out how to do it. But Jesus says, they'll kill him. When the son of the owner comes, he'll be killed. Jesus says why this was the case. He says the reason why the tenants, that's the religious leaders, didn't like the servants and didn't like the son of the owner is because they wanted power. They wanted the vineyard for themselves. This is the heir. Come, let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. They imagined that some or other it could be given to them. And we might think, well, that's highly unlikely. But we should perhaps listen to what was told in the Gospel of John and chapter 11 and verse 47, where John says, So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. And then listen to this. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him, and the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. As far as uh, John says, the leaders of Israel, of Judah, as far as Jesus was concerned, it was either him or them. If he continued, they would lose out. And here is Jesus, and here he's confronting them with that. He's saying to them, you're doing what you do because you're power mad and you're willing and so of your previous generation of rulers and leaders and in Israel that's been a consistent practice they got rid of God's servants the prophets and they're going to get rid of his, the owner's son in order to try to hold on to their power But then Jesus says to them, 
You're going to lose your power. Because he's, he asks the question rhetorically there in verse 15. What then will the owner of the vineyard do to them? He says he will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. He points out that judgment is coming. Judgment on these wicked rulers and leaders. But he's not talking about the day of judgment. The judgment that's going to come on them is that the vineyard is going to be taken from them. Or to put it another way, they're going to be taken from the vineyard. He's going to give it to others. And is that not what happened at the start of the Christian church? And is that not what really happened after the destruction of Jerusalem? So Jesus' story was actually very solemn, wasn't it? It was an appropriate time to tell a story. To tell a story that got straight to the point. And what would we expect from Jesus? We wouldn't expect anything else, would we? I mean, he's the way, the truth, and the life. And he'll tell the truth as he sees it. But it is a solemn parable, isn't it? The history of Israel in ten verses. And it's all very accurate. But what was the response to the parable? Well, the people are puzzled, they say, in verse 16. Surely not. I mean, they got the point. Surely not. Well, what should we do when somebody says, surely not? Well, we can see what Jesus did. And that is, he took them to a passage in the Bible. And he took them to a passage in Psalm 118. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was uh, obviously uh, some occasion when the builders were putting together a building and there was this stone that they thought was useless. But then... Eventually, they discovered it just suited perfectly to be the cornerstone. Jewish tradition said that this happened at the building of the second temple after they came back from Babylon. But whether it happened on that occasion or whether it was just an incident where that was well known that a rejected stone became the cornerstone that held the building together, 
It made such an impression on the psalmist who wrote Psalm 118 that he included it in it. And the question is, who's the stone? Who is Jesus speaking about when he refers to the stone? This stone that he says is actually dangerous. It's dangerous in two ways. It's dangerous, first of all, that people might trip over it. And after all, if the stone is just lying around, then people could trip over it. And I suspect that's what he's saying to the leaders of Israel. You're about to trip over me, is what he's saying. You're going to fall down. And he doesn't suggest they'll get up again. And in order to get the point, he says that they might not just trip over the stone, but that the stone might fall on them. And as he says there in verse 18, everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. And of course, Jesus is saying to them, isn't he? You don't really know who you're dealing with. And you don't realize who you're rejecting. This parable, this story, brings them to the point where they're actually facing the Son of God. And if they reject him, which they are going to do, There's no escape. It doesn't matter where they trip over him. And of course, they could come up with all kinds of statements whereby they thought they were justified in rejecting him. But if they trip over him, they're finished. And eventually, he's going to fall on them and crush them. What a warning to get from Jesus. A warning of being crushed without hope. So that's the parable. And we may say, well, that was a very interesting parable describing the Jews of long ago. But there are lessons in it for us. And I'd just like to mention five of them as we come to a conclusion. So what are the lessons? Well, the first one is this. Nothing can stop the exaltation of Jesus. He's going to be killed. 
He knows that. But he also knows that that's not the end for him. He knows that after he is killed, he's going to rise again. And that when he does rise again, at some stage in the future, he's going to be like this stone that comes crashing down on people. And we could imagine if we were under a big stone and it falls on us, there's no way to escape. Jesus knows that he's going to be the future judge. The cross. The cross is certainly the way he provided salvation. But it's also the road that leads to his exaltation. And part of his exaltation, a day that hasn't happened yet, is when he comes as judge. And when that day happens, if we're against him, the reality will be terrible. We will be judged in the same way as these priests were, and other rulers were warned. If a stone falls on you, there's no escape. Our Savior, the one who suffered on the cross, he is yet to be the future judge. And those who react to him now, in the same way as these rulers of Israel reacted to him, there's no escape. It's very sad very solemn, uncertain. Another lesson that comes in the parable is the patience of God. How many servants did God send? How many prophets did he send? One after the other, Hundreds, perhaps. The first time a prophet was dismissed, what did God do? The second time a prophet was dismissed, what did God do? Third time. Tenth time. It's a long time between Samuel and Jeremiah. Prophet after prophet. God's patience is extraordinary. His long suffering. How patient has he been with us? How many servants have we heard? How often perhaps some of us have dismissed what they said 
well. It's easy to dismiss a servant, but we can't dismiss the cornerstone. He will deal with it. His long-suffering, the God who is patient, who waits to show mercy. That's what the history of Israel tells us, doesn't it? Again and again and again, God showed mercy. A third lesson that comes from the parable is the consistency of the divine requirement of fruit. Why did God send these prophets? Well, Jesus tells us he sent them to get fruit. What fruit does God want? Well, as John the Baptist said, the last of the prophets, he said to bring forth fruits meet for repentance. Repentance certainly includes confession of sin, of course. But repentance is basically a change of heart, isn't it? The person who is repentant has a sensitive heart. His or her heart has been broken. They have realized and become affected by the fact that they have despised the Lord's goodness. And that's the fruit that God looks for penitence, a repentant life. Repentance is not only step one in the Christian life. It marks step two and step three and step eight and all the way along. And of course, we can think of other fruits that God wants. Fruit of the Spirit. And sometimes, and I say this just because I look at my own heart, but sometimes we don't take seriously that God expects fruit. That's what he sent these servants to find. And it's a serious thing not to have it. And the thing about the fruit is, I mentioned that God is consistent about it. He requires the same fruit in the 21st century as he did in the 1st century. His requirements haven't changed. The only thing is, he's waited a lot longer with us than he did with Israel. Fourth reason and it's an obvious one from the parable, 
as their leaders should be warned. These tenants, they were accountable. Accountable to the owner of the vineyard. They may have had their reasons for what they did. But it's the owner that will decide if they were valid or not. And it is a challenging parable for leaders. And the last thing we can see from it is the increasing brazenness of rejection of God. As each of the servants comes along, the hostility increases. And Jesus is a master storyteller. And when he's saying that, he must be making a point. But of course, the real depth of their brazenness is what they did to Jesus. And that just becomes a question for all of us, doesn't it? What are we doing with Jesus? I mean, that is the ultimate question. Do we accept him? Or are we indifferent to the fact that these leaders a long time ago got rid of him? or thought they did. And it is possible to have people to have that desire in their hearts to say secretly or even to say it openly I wish that Jesus wasn't here. If we do say that we're just standing beside these Tenants in the parable who rejected Jesus. So, though the parable describes the history of Israel, it is possible it also describes the history of individuals. Because, as I mentioned earlier, and we'll stop with this, how many servants have we heard? And have we produced the fruit that the owner is looking for? The fruit of repentance and the fruit of the Spirit. Shall we pray? Lord, we give you thanks.